This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here again is Dan Loney. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Well, we are featuring a series this month titled 2019, A Look Ahead. Today, we're going to focus on trade issues. The U.S. and China held another round of trade talks last week, which ended with both sides feeling a bit more positive. Higher-level talks were to have happened when President Trump attended the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, but he canceled that trip due to the government shutdown and his standoff with Democrats over funding a border wall. The U.S. is also preparing for talks with the European Union later this year, with agriculture being one of the tougher issues. So what can we expect to see with trade? Mary Lovely is an economics professor at Syracuse University School. Oh, I need to cut that off because we added that in. Uh, so what can we expect to see with trade? Matt Gold is an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University and a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Matt, great to have you with us today. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. I mean, we are hearing some, as we mentioned, some smaller pieces of information about the, the current negotiations with China, but obviously we're still a long way from any kind of agreement right now. But it is interesting to note that some of the economic data that's coming out of China is showing lower growth. So I guess I'll start off with whether or not there's an advantage to the U.S. right now in those negotiations because of some of that data that's coming out from China. Yes and no. Um, Certainly uh, China's slowing down. And certainly um, the trade war um, initiated by President Trump uh, has affected that slowdown. Um, China this month has um, a decrease in exports and imports that is actually quite significant over a year ago. Uh, and, and a lot of that is attributed to the trade war, though some to its general economic slowdown. And um, that's one of many signs of China's overall slowdown. Uh, there's no question that there's, this slowdown is putting pressure on um, President Xi to um, try to resolve this trade war situation with the United States. And there's no question that that's made the Chinese a little bit more pliant in the talks with the U.S. Uh, but the reason why I also say no to your question is because you can't emphasize enough nobody wins in a trade war. Um, you don't want to forget that these tariffs are also hurting the U.S. economy. Uh, and we're looking at um, not a slowdown, but um, the rate of growth of our economy is, is, is the rate of growth is slowing down. It's growing a little bit less fast than it was. And predictions for 2019 um, of, of growth dropping um, have just come out. Um, and um, our markets are getting a little bit queasy and, and a lot jittery uh, as a result of that. Um, not just the numbers for the U.S., but the numbers for our export markets like China and other export markets in the world, that they're slowing down. So, uh, And our stock market is such an important barometer for President Trump uh, of how well he's doing uh, because his other barometers uh, are, don't look so good. His, the stock market is, is an unusually important barometer for him. We have pressures on our side uh, that are equally uh, strong to the economic pressures on the Chinese side. So it's it affects the Chinese, but what's going on here equally affects us. 
How much also does it play into the negotiations with what we've seen with the the Huawei executives, uh, what happened in Canada and now what happened in Poland this past week? Yeah, that's that's a, a, uh, another issue. Um, we do have the issue of Chinese companies, and in this case, according to our suspicions, Chinese executives uh, violating U- U.S. law. We do want to enforce those laws, and, and we're serious about it. Um, if someone who's violated our um, export laws, which are important to our national security, uh, falls under the jurisdiction of a country that has a bilateral extradition treaty with the United States, um, there are definitely times when the United States um, will ask that country to arrest that person and try to have that person extradited to the United States. That's a legitimate uh, law enforcement uh, rule of law issue for us, uh, and it's important, among other things, for the war on terror. So we take that very seriously. Um, on the flip side, um, President Trump has um, allowed this to get intermixed with the trade war, which is really an, a very, very different issue. That's not about... Um, uh, particular individual companies or executives giving um, uh, technology, for example, to Iran um, against U.S. law. The trade war is about China itself not uh, fulfilling its obligations to the United States under the World Trade Organization agreements and not giving U.S. goods and services and investment capital the kind of access to the Chinese market uh, that they agreed to when they entered the WTO. Um, those are really two different issues. Uh, it's unfortunate they've gotten mixed together. Um, and when they become mixed together, and I guess this is the thrust of your question, what does that do? Uh, and the answer is it makes it harder for the United States on both sides. I think it makes it harder for us to legitimately prosecute um, our any what are essentially counterterrorism laws um, uh, uh, with respect to the individuals who are giving U.S. technologies to Iran in violation of those laws and other terrorist-supporting states. And on the other side, it makes it harder for the United States to negotiate um, for better compliance uh, by the Chinese with their trade obligations to the United States um, because, um, because the, the Chinese see us as, as enforcing our, our, um, our uh, criminal laws as, for the purpose of getting leverage in the trade negotiations, which is not what it is at least supposed to be. So I think by mixing the two, we've created problems in, in, on both issues for the United States. Are you optimistic, though, that we can uh, uh, deal with some of the issues surrounding uh, intellectual property and, and trade opportunities in China moving forward? Obviously, it's it's going to be a challenging negotiation no matter what. Yeah, um, that is a, a, an extreme challenge, and I'm not going to pretend uh, that it's going to be easy for us to make significant progress quickly because it isn't. Um, as you know, Dan, I've said so many times on this show that the way President Trump is going about it is the worst way you could go about it. But if we did it the best way we could go about it, um, I, there's no possible way someone like me could honestly tell you we'd make quick progress. Right. Um, the, the simple reality is that we let China into the World Trade Organization more than 15 years ago at a time when everyone was hopeful China was shifting um, from centrally planned economy to a market-oriented economy. And there's been a shift back in the other direction. Um, and that means a couple of things. One, it means that, that it really does require um, a change in the corporate culture of many parts of the Chinese government uh, for China to come into compliance with these obligations, which they could do, but it's, it's, it's a big long-term thing. It's like turning a massive ocean liner around, uh, making a U-turn can take you 12 hours. It's not 
easy for the Chinese to do that, and it would be almost irreversible. They couldn't turn back on a dime, and they're, they're, they're very cautious before they make those kinds of systemic changes. And second, um, China's embarked on this series of programs to make themselves this economic, world-dominant economic power, kind of like Japan times 10. Um, and um, the current regime in China has sort of proven to the party that um, they can achieve that more quickly and more effectively with central planning. Um, and so they've slowed down the shift to central planning in order to move forward these, these big, big um, um, economic programs. Uh, and so we simultaneously um, have this problem with China not, not quickly agreeing and not easily able to bring themselves into compliance with their W-2 obligations to us. And also we have China sort of scaring everybody into thinking it's going to uh, conquer the world economically. Um, and so we have a lot of fear here in the United States about what to do. Um, during the Obama administration, we had a policy of engagement with China. We had, a, we had a dual policy. One was we engaged the Chinese on all the issues with respect to which they were out of compliance with WTO obligations. And, we, and the good news, there was good news and bad news. The good news is they weren't engaged with us with, on 50 to 100 issues, mm -hmm. 365 days a year. Um, and what happened was the ball moved forward. That was more good news. Uh, the ball, ball moved forward consistently, and the ball almost never moved backwards. When they, when they fixed something, they never went backwards. But the forward motion was excruciatingly slow. Uh, it was unacceptable, um, and so we needed an alternative. The alternative under the Obama administration was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. Um, and without, I'm not going to digress to a dissertation on that, but in one sentence, if that had all gone through, we really would have put China into a tremendous corner. We would have had tremendous leverage over China to bring China not only into compliance with its WTO obligations, but also um, into compliance with the higher level TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership obligations, because China would have needed to have joined that and we would have had the keys to entry. That was the plan. It took us eight years to painstakingly negotiate that agreement and put China in a corner. The Chinese were outmatched, cornered, checkmate, terrified of it. Uh, more scared than they needed to be, but they were actually terrified of it. Um, it was it was brilliant strategically. It was a very hard won agreement tactically. Um, and then on his first full business day in office, President Trump pulled us out of the TPP, not even beginning to comprehend the implications of what he was doing. And he literally threw away all the leverage we had over China and had spent nearly a decade building up. And then he went into negotiations with China with no leverage. We're also joined by Mary Lovely, who's an economics professor at Syracuse University School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. Mary, welcome back to the show. Uh, and I'll start with your view of, of where we are with the U.S.-China trade relations at this point and the conversations that have been going on. Well, I think Matt covered a lot of ground, and um, I certainly agree with what he said. Um, I think that there's a lot we don't know about what's going on in negotiations, so we need to be a little cautious here. What we do know, though, is that there's, almost, there's two competing visions for the relationship. Um, one is that we can work a deal with China and that we can incrementally make policy better. Um, as Matt um, carefully outlined, uh, a policy of engagement and progress, however slow it was, still forward progress under the Obama administration, um, was producing some fruits. And so there's some reason to believe that uh, that policy, perhaps with more teeth added or 
you know, the fist uh, of sanctions of various types. And by that, I mean different types of tariffs or decoupling, selective decoupling might actually produce some really nice outcomes. The other view is that this relationship is simply unworkable. Um, we've seen some recent op-eds uh, in major newspapers espousing these views that what we really need to do is to uncouple, uh, <laughs> consciously uncoupling or not, uh, channeling a little bit of Gwyneth Paltrow there. Um, <laughs> So what, you know, that's a very different view. The view is that basically the Chinese goals are incompatible with a rules-based trading system. They're bad for the future of the United States economically, politically, etc., and that there's only one thing left, which is to decouple. Those are two very different views of the world. And um, I don't think this administration has really settled down on where it's going to go with this. I think one of the things we're waiting to see by March 1st is how this battle within the administration plays out. But the other part to it, Mary, is that we also have the government shutdown going on right now as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which, while it may not directly impact the actual negotiations, it is impacting farmers because the subsidies that they were getting uh, now have been put on hold. Uh, Those are the subsidies to deal with the tariffs as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have any response except to say that, you know, right now we're in a sort of this period of suspended animation where things are not good. We were hoping for some resolution on a number of different issues. And, um, you know, we're sort of caught waiting. We might use this time productively to sort of play out different scenarios or counterfactuals on what could happen given different policies. And I think that might be useful. Um, One of the things that Matt said that, that caught my ear was, um, this view that the U.S. let China into the WTO. I'd be interested in hearing more from him about what he thought the alternative was if the U.S. Um, had not reached an agreement with China. I think that um, obviously the U.S. Uh, and China agreement was essential to China's accession, um, but I think that the view that we could have held this off indefinitely is not correct. Um, And I think that matters because when we're talking about uncoupling or decoupling, um, there's this sort of view that we did it wrong and we can go back and everything will be fine. You know, uh, there are a lot of other countries that are trading with China, and they're being impacted by the ongoing trade conflict. Uh, One country, for example, that's being uh, impacted is Germany. Uh, because uh, China's exports um, fell last uh, month, but its imports fell by more. And those imports are intermediates and capital goods that are used then in its exports. And those come from a lot of different countries, including Germany. And so it puts pressure on Germany, which puts pressure on Europe. So we have to realize that this is not just a bilateral. This is, this is a globally integrated system, and therefore that it has implications for other countries. And I think so does this narrative about whether the U.S. lets okay. China into the WTO. Okay, Matt, your thoughts? Uh, well, first, um, let me respond to uh, what Mary said about the decision as to whether let to let China into the World Trade Organization, which, of course, was a threshold decision. I, I am in complete agreement with her, and I hope I didn't imply otherwise. Um, letting China into the WTO was somewhere between the, the right and really the only option that existed. Um, there were no true 
alternatives to China coming into the global trading system. At the time we did it, um, we knew there were risks, and we knew among the risks were China reversing and going back towards um, central planning. We knew the risks were noncompliance, but given all of the risks, it was clearly the right move because China is such an enormous economy, uh, and you, you know, if you want the global trading system to have credibility, you've got to bring a country like China in, and if you have to, you've got to spend 50 years getting them into compliance. Um, but keeping them outside the system at a certain point is only going to erode the entire global trading system and, and create a whole series of other problems that are far worse. So I, I, I definitely agree that bringing them in was the right thing. But we do need, in order to be fair, to take a, a look at you know, what would have happened um, if President Trump had not taken the road he took. You know, what were the alternatives to the United States? Well, certainly shifting from engagement to confrontation was a, a, an option that we had. Um, and because engagement was just going too slowly and um, it really wasn't going to get to where it needed to be um, in, any, in any reasonable time frame. And if we switch the confrontation, but not the way President Trump did it, the, the way any other American president would have done it, uh, would have been to pursue retaliation against China through the WTO's own process for that. Um, and we are in that process parallel uh, right now. What that would have done is it would have taken a few years to litigate before a WTO panel and then the appellate body, uh, and then we would have gotten legal permission to impose the same $50 billion of retaliatory tariffs on China that, we, that President Trump imposed immediately. Uh, and then we would not have had um, uh, China retaliating to our retaliation, and we would not have had the downward spiral that's put us much deeper in with tariffs on $250 billion of goods and Chinese tariffs on $110 billion of ours. Uh, we would be at a single point where we have... 50 billion of retaliatory on China, full stop, and then waiting to see what China does. Now, if someone like I, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say, well, you know, that doesn't mean China would have brought themselves into compliance. What would have happened then? Right. Um, And if they didn't, if they just simply didn't budge, then then we would have gone up to 250 billion. And if they then didn't budge, we would be close to the same place, except they wouldn't be retaliating against us. Um, but we'd still be hurting both co- economies, and we'd still be stuck in a trap. Um, and at a certain point, the only option would be for the United States to start talking to our uh, WTO partners about withdrawing our WTO obligations from China. That's not removing China from the WTO, but simply pulling the U.S. and China out so that we don't have WTO obligations to them, and they don't have WTO obligations to us, but we do to the rest of the countries, and they do to the rest of the countries. And that would be the only next move that would exist. And it is hard to imagine, uh, and I'm not saying that that would be the right move, but when you're left with only that move or, or everyone is complying with the rules except China, and those are the two options, you're in a tough place. Uh, I want to move on to uh, the USMCA agreement, if I can, for a couple of minutes. And, Mary, I'll, I'll start with you. Now that uh, uh, this agreement is uh, is agreed to and, and signed off on, uh, how do you view that agreement moving forward, and, and not just for the United States, but, but for all three parties? Well, I think almost everyone is relieved that the USMCA was finally negotiated and signed, Um you know, I don't see any big changes. It's very similar to what we had before. It's been updated in in, in several ways. Um, but basically, it's pretty much what we had before, uh, contrary to, uh, you know, the administration's rhetoric. I think it's good that businesses have more um, 
uncertainty about what the rules of the road will be for uh, North American trade, um, and that's good. But, you know, other than that, we didn't see some big changes. The one area where we see the changes is in the automobile industry with some added um, protectionism, frankly, some new um, rules of origin and some uh, labor uh, requirements, six, the $16 an hour, a certain proportion of the car has to be made with $16 an hour labor. And these basically make it a little bit more difficult for North American producers to uh, arrange their production in North America. I know that some folks in the, in the labor movement um, and uh, certainly some manufacturing sec, uh, folks like these provisions Unfortunately, I think they add more difficulty to the industry at a time when it's clear that the future is going to require enormous amounts of investment in uh, new energy vehicles, new production. I think that it would have been much wiser to look ahead and think about how we can um, make sure that the U.S. is strong and producing, that is manufacturing here in the U.S. in those areas. Matt, your thoughts? Uh, I agree with, with all of that. Um, I just had a couple of things. Um, there were a large number of small changes, most of which were lifted from the TPP agreement that President Trump pulled us out of. Um, he certainly didn't get all the TPP provisions back, and of course he only got them back with respect to Canada and Mexico, not the TPP countries. But he did a, a bunch of those things that we negotiated are, are sort of back, at least in terms of trade between, uh, among U.S., Canada, and Mexico in, in the USMCA. Um, and there are a lot of very small things that are not going to affect the balance of trade or bring back manufacturing jobs. But if you're, you know, if you're me uh, and you've, you've drowned in that detail, um, then um, a, a lot of those small things do matter uh, a little bit. Um, and that's a net positive for the USMCA. Uh, certainly not worth the incredible damage that President Trump did to our relationships with Canada and Mexico, but uh, it is what it is. Um, and the other thing is... Um, you know, even in areas like um, the very few areas like uh, automotive rules of origin, where, as Mary points out, there were some changes, the changes are less than you think. <laughs> um, you know, they increase the percentages of North American content that you have to have, but they also change the way you calculate it. So it, it, you can count content that you didn't used to be able to count. So it's not clear whether the actual supply chains or, 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 or the ways of manufacturing the vehicles are going to have to change in order to comply with the new rules. Um, and the last thing I would say is the big things that we really did need to change in NAFTA for the last 25 years, of course, didn't get changed. Um, we didn't eliminate the, the Canadian tariff rate quotas on U.S. poultry eggs and traditional dairy products. We didn't uh, eliminate the Chapter 19 binational panels to review U.S. Uh, anti-dumping duty and countervailing duty orders. We didn't, uh, we didn't change a few things that were the big things that we actually have needed to change uh, for 25 years. So it's... it's um, it's a small improvement in no way what was uh, promised uh, on the campaign trail, but there isn't a lot of reason for anyone in Congress to vote against it. So uh, I do believe it'll go through. The other thing, the last thing I'll say on that is you always have to remember the steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, President Trump, um, in violation of our WTO trade obligations, has and still maintains uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum coming in from many countries, um, and that includes Canada and Mexico. And there was some kind of understanding when they signed USMCA that that the United States would talk to both countries about dropping the steel and aluminum tariffs um, in conjunction with the uh, USMCA coming into force. And now there seems to be pushback 
or I should say walking back by the administration on that. And it's not 100% clear that Canada and Mexico um, are going to just walk forward and go all the way through to um, the entry into force of the USMCA if the um, uh, steel and aluminum tariffs are still in place on steel and aluminum from those countries. So could we see some sort of uh, of uh, halt to the agreement because of this, Matt? Um, you know, no one knows for sure because what went on there is a little bit of a black box, but I'm concerned that um, if, if Trump, you know, what, a couple things could happen. I mean, at, at the end, Trump could just drop the steel and aluminum tariffs for Canada and Mexico, you know, as part of a you know, a photo op in connection with the ratification implementation of USMCA. Or he could dig his heels in and say no, in which case we're going to find out exactly what that, you know, closed-door agreement was, that no one knows exactly what it was. And, and if the agreement was that we would and Trump doesn't, then, yeah, I think the Canadians and Mexicans could delay their their uh, entry into force of the agreement um, uh, with the feeling that President Trump um, double-crossed them on the steel and aluminum tariffs. So either could happen. We just don't know enough about exactly what the understanding was right. uh, between the U.S. and Canada or between the U.S. and Mexico on that. All right. I wanted to take the last couple of minutes here to talk about uh, the European Union and, and issues surrounding agriculture. Matt, and obviously there's been a lot of, of rhetoric back and forth uh, between President Trump and, and some of the leaders of the European Union uh, when uh, those parties have gotten together uh, over the last uh, two years' time. Where do we stand on the relationship with the European Union Union uh, going into 2019? Uh, well, of course, the transatlantic talks that existed under the Obama administration came to an end when President Trump came to office. Now, um, President Trump has renewed the um, discussion of a transatlantic negotiation. Um, the United States just published our negotiating objectives, and the Europeans are about to publish their version of the same, um, which looks good. Um, and uh, the, the sticking points right now, I mean, there are a few things that we want to talk about that we have in any free trade agreement. This is not quite a full free trade agreement, but it's close, um, that the Europeans just simply won't talk about. Uh, and they include agriculture, um, geographic indications, government procurement. Uh, but agriculture is the big one. The Europeans are saying they just won't talk about agriculture. They support agriculture. They have a lot of subsidies, a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, programs in the European Union support European Union agriculture that make it hard for American agriculture to get into the European market. And, and we were kind of stuck on that in the transatlantic negotiations during the Obama administration. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But the two sides are stuck right now um, because now it's an issue of whether it will be on the agenda at all. Mary, your thoughts, and, and also for, I want you to touch on uh, the potential impacts to the U.S. if the Brexit goes forward as well. Oh boy. Well, first on the on the um, agreement, uh, ag Matt's right. He's hit on agriculture as a key point. But of course, in the background is what the U.S. will do on automobiles, and um, I think a, a motivation on the Europeans is to head off uh, the worst of worst tendencies of the administration with regard to uh, quotas or tariffs on on exports um, from Europe to the United States, automobile exports. So we have to look in the auto uh, space. We know also on the USMCA that there were side agreements that were made with uh, both countries regarding automobile exports. So it does look like they're teeing up something in autos, and um, the Europeans would like to get ahead of that. Uh, whether they'll be able to even you know, get off the ground, given that one side says agriculture is an absolutely necessity, and the other side it says it's a non-starter, we'll see what happens. Um, as far as um, 
just Brexit. Yeah. Wow. We really don't know what will happen with Brexit. I think there's a lot of dangers for the U.S. and Brexit that are more are systemic. Uh, one of the things we really don't know is how um, the financial system will be affected. I think this is something that hasn't received as much uh, notice as it might have. Uh, London is a financial center. There's a lot of other functions that the U.K. Um, uh, currently performs that are perhaps at risk. There has been a, an agreement on banking with the EU and, UK, and the UK, but there's a lot of other p parts, moving parts of this that we really don't know uh, how it will be if there's a, a no-deal Brexit, which looks increasingly likely. I guess we'll find out more today at 2 p.m. with the vote in the UK. Matt, final word on that? Um, you know, I've been rock climbing for 40 years, and one of the fundamental rules of rock climbing is that down climbing is much more difficult and more dangerous than up climbing. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think the British people got to the edge of the cliff, a cliff they climbed up and looked over, and they, they thought they were going to down climb this, and now they're looking over that cliff and realizing they're not. I, I honestly don't – I'm not – I think the likelihood of Brexit not happening is a lot higher than it happening at this point. We right. are going to see a vote today in the parliament, and, and I think it will lead to a referendum, and I think they might end up backing off it, but it will be a heck of a mess if they don't. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Matt. All the best. Thank you. All the best. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.